So good to be with you guys. Um, my, my wife. Uh, we've just got five little kids that throughout. We're going to school tomorrow morning. Quarter past six, so we reckon a bit late for them. So we got five kids. That picture was taken in the Tableview Dunes, by the way. And uh, we had Eli and Finn and Ivy. They were two years apart, two years apart, two years apart. And the last two were two minutes apart. So Julie wanted to stop at three. I, I was pretty sure that we needed to go for a four. Uh, there was back and forth conversation. And eventually she let me have a go. And I got a bonus one. I got a bonus one. <laughs> I want to speak to you tonight about what's so amazing about Jesus. What's so amazing about Jesus? Um, you know, one of the things that strikes me is there's that part of the Gospels where it says that Pilate came out and said, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And Jesus comes out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And then Pilate says to them, behold the man. I like those words, behold the man. And as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. And Pilate's resistance is weak. He basically lets Jesus be crucified. When Jesus was a little boy, 2,000 zealots were crucified in the road surrounding his town. He had seen crucifixions. And every single person who got crucified, their name would disappear from history, which is so remarkable about Jesus because he's one more crucified person. And yet, what, 2,000 years later, he turns out, this crucified person, to be the most influential person of all time. And he stands beating and bleeding before a crowd. And uh, yet, millennia later, this humble presence of this man towers over the skylines of human history. Says one historian, I'm not a believer, but I must confess that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Another historian says, as the centuries pass, the evidence is growing that measured by his effect in history, Jesus is the most influential life ever lived on the planet. Um, I work for Common Ground, a church that's friends with life changes for 20 years. I finished up at the end of last year. And in my last two and a half weeks, my final assignment was to write a 30-day devotional. Every year I'd write a devotional commentary for the church and I chose the subject, What's So Amazing About Jesus? And each day I would focus in on one more amazing thing about Jesus. It was fantastic to reflect on 20 years of preaching and to go, actually, what, what's the bottom line? What is it that we found in the scriptures about this Jesus? And uh, what I did in preparation for coming to speak to you guys is I went for a little prayer walk. And I had the idea that I've got 30 things I could speak on about Jesus and, but I realized I've only got three points because, you know, all preachers only got three points. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you know, uh, faith, hope, love. So it's just three is the, is the way things are. And I prayed a prayer. I said, God, of the 30 different amazing things about Jesus, just, just give me three. Give me three. And it was one of those cool prayers where I, I felt within really about a minute the answers came. And, and that's what I want to speak to you about today. Three things that amaze me about Jesus. So let's dive in right away, the first one. I'm amazed by the kinds of people Jesus calls. I'm amazed by the kinds of people Jesus calls. You're three chapters into the Gospel of Mark, and you read these words. Jesus called those he wanted, and they came to him. 
He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12. Simon, whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee and his brother John, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And whenever you get a group of guys hanging out, nicknames start taking off. Jesus took the prerogative to name people, hey, Boanerges. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, uh, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and then uh, the infamous one, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay, why does Jesus choose 12? Well, it's clear that, clear that these 12 are the vanguard for his new movement. Uh, ancient Israel understood very clearly the meaning of 12. They all came from the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Abraham. And the story of the Old Testament, the part of the Bible written before Jesus comes, is a tragic story because there's this promise over these 12 tribes. And uh, as the centuries march on, these tribes come undone so that by the, old, the end of the Old Testament, only two tribes survive. The people of God are a disaster by the end of the Old Testament. And Jesus comes along and he says, we're starting again. And now he reconstitutes, reorganizes the people of God under himself as the true Israel, with the new patriarchs, the new, the new uh, leaders of the, the people of God. He's inviting people to be part of the people of God. And why does he call them? Well, the reasons are given clearly in those verses we read. The first one is that they might be with him. Jesus needs partners in his work. He needs friends in his life. In one place, he speaks to his disciples and he calls them. He says, you are my family. You are my mothers and my brothers and my sisters. But there's another reason Jesus calls them. He calls them that he might send them out. See, Jesus has a vision to transform the world. He knows his time is short. And he's raising up these people to be his hands, his feet, his mouth for when he's gone. Notice also that Jesus is a rabbi. Uh, in the Gospels, Jesus is called a rabbi. In the first century, rabbis were wise men who were studied in the Word, who at the age of 30 would be approached by some young people who would say, teach us a rabbi. And Jesus at the age of 30 calls 12 disciples. Usually people would choose their rabbi, but in this case the rabbi goes out and chooses his people. And, uh, and he does say, he says, hey, remember, you didn't choose me, I chose you. He, he kind of breaks some of the norms there. And such is the magnetism of Jesus that it seems that he can just walk up to guys and within minutes he has their hearts. And uh, there's wonderful stories of different disciples deciding to give up everything to be part of his, you know, his disciples, his ministry team that he's going to train up. These 12 include two sets of brothers, James and John, and then uh, Peter and Andrew, who work as partners on fishing boats. And uh, when he calls them, it turns out that it's the most successful day in their fishing career. Jesus pulls off a miraculous catch. And at the height of their career, he says, I've got something better for you. And they walk away from their successful careers to follow Jesus. But notice what kinds of people he chooses as you think about these 12. Firstly, Jesus chooses a diversity of people. And to be fair, those four fishermen... They're kind of all cut from the same block. But there's a lot of variety otherwise. I mean, think about Simon the Zealot. A zealot means that he was, he was part of a party that believed that Rome should be driven out by sheer military force. That's a radical. 
And yet, in the same group, there's Matthew the tax collector, who says, hang on, if you work with these Romans, you can actually get some, you can line your pockets. And he, he goes to his neighbors and he collects money and he collects commission. So he has somebody working with Caesar, another guy hates Caesar. You can imagine the conflict between these men. And what Jesus does is he teaches them off bat that part of following him means that you might need to follow him in the company with some people that you wouldn't naturally choose as your friends. In fact, Jesus once is having a conversation with Peter, and Peter speaks of a friend, uh, one of the brothers, we don't know which one, who's driving him mad. He says, Jesus, how many times must I forgive this brother? What, like seven times? I'm on six. I'm going to go mad if you ask me to do one more. And Jesus says, well, no, no, 70 times seven. And there's that saying, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. And uh, by the way, the church will always be, you'll always, if you're in a life group, there'll always be one person in the life group who you wouldn't have chosen to be one of your friends. And, and, and there's always that one person in a life group. And mind you, if you can't think of who that person is, it might mean, it might mean that, that you're the person. And notice that Jesus chooses unpromising people. Unpromising people. By the way, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are historical documents. They are biographies of a man called Jesus. And there are tremendous marks of authenticity on this. Uh, one of the marks of authenticity is that if it was propaganda, that a bunch of men got in a room and made up these stories, almost certainly they would have, as the church leaders, made themselves look pretty good in the stories. And yet these guys look like disappointing dimwits. I mean, these are the leaders of the church. I mean, think about James and John. James and John, they walk into a town. They can't find a place to stay. They say, Jesus, call down fire! I think that's when they get the name, you know, Boanerges, Sons of Thunder. <laughs> At one point, their mom is hanging out in the group, and they go, Mom, Jesus seems to get on well with you. Can you ask him if we can be number one and two in the kingdom? Go, Mom, go! And she does it. Peter is always putting his foot in his mouth. He's discouraging Jesus from his life's work. He's interrupting Jesus at crucial moments with nonsense speech. He's swearing he'll never, ever let Jesus down. Read the Gospels again and again. We see Jesus deeply frustrated, rebuking his disciples for their dullness and their lack of faith. In fact, in the final night before his death, we see Jesus at his most vulnerable, humanly speaking. And he gets his three closest friends and he says, just stay awake. Just stay awake. If you know the story, they fall asleep not once but twice. And then when he's arrested an hour later, Peter panickingly chops off a servant's ear, flees for his life, denies his association with Jesus three times to another servant, and finally locks himself up in a room. I mean, these are the great leaders of the church. I think what's evident here is that Jesus does not call the worthy. He doesn't call the worthy. Rather, he, he calls us and then slowly but surely makes us worthy. He's not a talent scout looking for this amazing potential. He takes people that are, that, that are potential-less <laughs> and he does something with their lives. Hey, on the same note, Jesus doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. 
I mean, I think the happiest you ever see Jesus in the Gospels is, is the time in Luke chapter 10 when the disciples have been sent out on this mission trip without him. They come back and they say, it worked. People's lives were changed. It was amazing. And Jesus is happy as a little kid. And he's truly in awe that this plan is working of taking a ragtag of losers and turning them into portals of heaven's power. It works. And uh, I'm saying all of this to encourage us. <laughs> yeah? You don't have to be worthy. You don't have to be equipped. Jesus calls you not because of who you are, but because he can take whatever you have, whatever you are, and do something with our lives. And it's important that we stay open to his grace. If anything, uh, these 12 apostles are marked by their ability to receive grace. I don't know if you know the story, but Judas does something nasty, betrays Jesus. He is remorseful, but he's not repentant. And it's almost after Jesus is crucified, he accepts the consequence of what he's done, and he takes his own life. Peter has also failed Jesus on that night. Just a matter of degree that is slightly less than the intensity of Judas. He's also uh, remorseful. And yet, we're told in the story that Jesus intercepts the consequence of his failure and calls him back. And, Jesus, and, and Peter stays open to the grace. And very often in our life, we'd be following Jesus. And uh, there are times when we just feel like we've blown it too bad. And then if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, just stay open to his grace. Notice also that Jesus chooses people who are held by conviction. I mean, these guys ultimately get the job done once Jesus returns to heaven. Think about Peter. I mean, Peter is the one who brings in this big catch of fish. And we're told in the day of Pentecost, he leads a, a church service and 3,000 people come to faith on that particular day. Um, and think how these, these apostles are willing to suffer for Jesus. Church tradition tells us that 11 of the 12 of them are martyred, except for John. In fact, tradition tells us that the brothers Andrew and Peter were both crucified. Andrew uh, crucified in Greece, and Peter crucified in Rome, but crucified upside down. And the question is, why did they endure such hardship? Uh, scourging and execution and, and punishment and accusation far away from home. All they had to do is, is just deny Jesus. And the answer comes in Peter's first sermon where he says, This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Bottom line is, when they saw Jesus risen again from the dead, they encountered a fact of history that they would not deny. And they were held by this conviction. And it's the reason, by the way, that the church exploded into the ancient world. Apart from the resurrection of Jesus, there is no explanation how these guys that were so shivering and shaking, they would even deny Jesus to a nobody, would soon enough be willing to tell everybody about Jesus, even if their throats got cut. Tell you what else I'm amazed about Jesus. I'm amazed by the moment of his, for lack of a better term, liftoff. I'm amazed by the moment of his liftoff. Maybe you're new to church tonight. Maybe you're learning a whole bunch of stuff about Jesus in this message. I'm so glad that you're here. 
you might know that there are some big events in the life of Jesus, the most famous ones being his, his uh, baptism, his temptation, and, and then feeding of the 5,000, and then, the, then his, the, his trials, and then his crucifixion and his resurrection. We make a big thing of the crucifixion and the resurrection. But what a lot of people don't pick up on is that 10 days, uh, sorry, 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus ascends to heaven. He lifts off the ground. And I want to argue that that's one of the most unsung moments in the journey of Jesus with such radical meaning for our lives now. So let me go there. In John 16, verse 7, Jesus says, Unless I go away, that's what the ascension is, by the way, the liftoff. He is going away. Unless I go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And this, just before Jesus ascends to heaven with his disciples watching him, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and, Jude, in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. So he lifts off the ground. Acts 1 here tells the story of Jesus disappearing from the sight of his disciples, leaving them behind dumbfounded like little children staring at the sky, looking like they've lost their parents. And two angels are sent to calm them down and ask them why they're still looking into the blank sky. And before we, uh, you know, tease the disciples, there is something really appropriate about their momentary stun. Because they have witnessed such a seismic a moment of change in the journey of Jesus. The Son of God has come down, lived on the earth. And the Jesus of history, in that moment, is lifting off the ground and becoming the Christ of faith. The Christ of faith. The New Testament is divided by that moment. The, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in Acts chapter 1 speaks about Jesus present on the earth through His body. But from that moment on, Jesus will be present on the earth through His Holy Spirit. This is a decisive moment. No longer does he walk on the earth as one of us. Now his headquarters are in, is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. The question I want to ask is, what's Jesus doing up there? Christians speak a lot about what the past. Back in the day, Jesus died and rose again. One day he's coming back. But what's he doing? Pardon? Yeah, true. What's he doing today? What's he doing this very moment? And I want to provide four answers from the Scriptures. Firstly, this very day, Jesus is ruling the universe. Peter's very first message to thousands of Jews in Jerusalem, he quotes a psalm about the Messiah, Psalm 2, and he says, The Lord said to my Lord, in other words, God said to Jesus, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your, for your feet. This is the verse from the Old Testament that is quoted most in the New Testament. Okay? And the picture is Jesus sitting on a throne. He's putting his feet on his enemies. That's the picture. Jesus is ruling. He is seated on a throne. Second thing that Jesus is doing is he is building his church. And Jesus made a huge promise in Matthew 16 verse 19. He says, I will build my church. That was 2,000 years ago. A ragtag of people in Jerusalem. Now, if Jesus is the Son of God, then uh, surely stuff would happen after that. Has stuff happened after that? 
How about four million churches on the planet now? Jesus has been busy building his church. And it's good to remember, especially as you're in in an exciting phase of this church, planting more churches. Sometimes we might think, you know, us leaders, we thought, let's do some church planting. As though, as though it originated in our minds. And it's true, these conversations are important. We do need to be on our front foot and say, hey, what can we do? But remember that actually in heaven, this started in the heart of God long ago. Jesus always planned that there'd be a little church or a big church called Life Changers. They would plant another Life Changers in Milton and then another one in the city and another one in Heart Bay after that. <laughs> 